If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. These moneyed men were were viewed with some suspicion. They were thought to be rather uh, duplicitous, a little bit shifty, um, always on the make. That was Anne Murphy on Georgian banking. War is the great dynamo of uh, making kings look for more money wherever they can get it. And that was Judith Green on Henry I's finances. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. Currently, our Google Play and Kindle Fire editions are only available in the UK, but we hope to roll them out to other countries soon. Look out for details of all of this and much more besides on our website, historyextra.com. Following the global financial crisis of 2008, much attention has been paid to the ways in which the banking profession is managed and the impact that it has on wider society. University of Hertfordshire lecturer Anne Murphy argues such concerns are nothing new, however, as she tells our section editor Matt Elton about an 18th century inquiry into the Bank of England. So what was the state of the Bank of England in the late 18th century? Okay, so in the late 18th century, the Bank of England's in a very good position. Uh, It is uh, the manager of the state's debt, banker to the state, and therefore it has a privileged position in that respect. It has a monopoly over banking services, uh, which prevents any bank setting up with more than six partners, which means that the bank is the Bank of England is the largest bank of the country and it's going to remain the largest bank of the country. Um, that monopoly does cause it some problems. There are lots of people that object to it, lots of people who would like to be able to introduce rivals to the bank, uh, particularly with a view to trying to make the bank more efficient and more competitive. But in general, those calls are resisted and resisted quite well. So the bank is in a, in a very strong position. So how many people worked for the bank? There were more than 300 by 1783. Uh, The bank starts off with just 17 clerks when it opens in 1694, uh, but that increases quite quickly. Um, By the end of the 18th century, business is really booming, uh, particularly business done for the state, and this requires a really complex organisation. So more than 300 clerks, mostly working in very specialised areas with a high degree of organisation and cooperation between offices being necessary. Mm, Okay, so physically, what would the bank have been like if you were to visit it in the period? Uh, I think overwhelmingly noisy and confusing. Uh, it's it's a big place. Uh, it's 
complicated to negotiate your way around. Uh, by the end of the 18th century, people are publishing guides to the Bank of England, which tell customers where to go to do the kind of business that they want to do. There's also a suggestion that it's it's a bit of a hub in its area of the city. Uh, lots of people come there to do business, and this attracts people who uh, want to apply their business in that particular area. So there's lots of suggestions to the watchmen and to the guards at the bank that they might uh, make sure that the street sellers uh, don't come into the environs of the bank, uh, to keep beggars out, uh, to be on their uh, guard for pickpockets who tend to ply their trade in the public areas of the bank. Um, and there's also some hints at prostitutes plying their trade uh, in the public areas of the bank. The bank is also a tourist attraction by this point. Uh, it's in a lot of the tourist guides that are produced at the end of the 18th century. Um, and these guides are basically telling people who come to London uh, that the bank is a place to see and to be seen at. Sure. So, I mean, the fact that people were kind of visiting the bank in the period means they must have had... Uh, a kind of an impression of bankers. How do you think they saw them? There was a great wariness about financiers in general. Uh, they would have thought of them as the moneyed men. Um, and these moneyed men were were viewed with some suspicion. They were thought to be rather uh, duplicitous, a little bit shifty, um, always on the make. Uh, you were warned that if you were doing business with these men, uh, that you needed to be wary, you needed to be on your guard. Um, this extends really to people like stockbrokers and stock jobbers, uh, bankers and financiers more generally. Um, but this is very much a public, a general public perception. Uh, and the clerks, the bank's clerks themselves, wouldn't have viewed themselves in that way at all. You get the impression from the report and other documents that they were actually quite proud of their jobs. Um, and they viewed the bank as giving them uh, quite a good position in society, especially as they moved up uh, the hierarchical ladder. Uh, they came to regard themselves as gentlemen. Um, and this, of course, is incompatible with the idea that they were rather shifty and duplicitous. Mm, OK. I mean, do you do we have a sense of why people viewed them as, as such? Yes, um, I think much in the same way as today, there were a lot of people who didn't quite know what bankers and financiers did. Uh, there is always the sense uh, that people who deal with money don't produce anything. Um, and because they don't produce anything, they're viewed as, as ripping uh, their customers off. Uh, you go and you borrow uh, from a banker or a financier, they charge you interest. That, that seems like uh, a transaction that is all one-sided. Uh, it's very good for the banker. It's very bad for the customer. And there's a general amount of suspicion about that as well. When it came to the stock market, uh, the financiers were viewed as spreading rumors and creating problems in order to line their own pockets. So they, they manipulated the market. Um, and they did very well out of that transaction. And people who were reliant upon uh, either the government debt or their bank shares for 
a regular income. Uh, they did very badly out of those sorts of transactions. So there was a great deal of suspicion there as well. Okay, so in the piece, you talk specifically about an inquiry that took place in 1783. Um, how did this come about? It was, uh, there's, there's unfortunately no smoking gun that tells us precisely why the bank set up this inquiry at this time. Uh, it's a bank-run inquiry rather than a government inquiry. But if we look at the context, I think we can work out uh, why it was set up in 1783. And the context was the ending of the War of American Independence. Um, obviously, the loss of the American colonies uh, created a great deal of anxiety at that point. There were lots of complaints about incompetence and corruption. There were lots of complaints about the idea that financiers had done very, very well out of a war that the country had uh, done quite badly out of. Uh, so there's a great deal of concern about that. This had led to an investigation into the public finances. Uh, there were also investigations going on into the state and the management of the East India Company at this point. I think, um, I can't prove it, but my theory is that the management of the Bank of England were aware of all these situations. Uh, they saw the government closing in and they decided to set up their own inquiry in order to preempt a possible government inquiry in the future. So um, what did the um, inquiry involve? Well, the bank appointed a committee of three directors uh, to conduct the inquiry. They gave those directors uh, the same kind of privileges that the inspectors who'd uh, conducted the inquiry into the bank, uh, into the public finances rather, had had. Um, and that was that they could call any staff, they could look at any document, they were allowed to go anywhere in the bank and they were allowed to ask any questions that might occur to them. Uh, so they really had full permission to investigate anything that they wanted. Um, and the way they worked was they, they toured the bank, uh, they went into offices and they observed work uh, for a day and then they uh, retired and talked amongst themselves and then they interviewed uh, various members of the staff. Uh, so they always started with the chief officer in any office. Uh, they talked to him about how his office worked, what they were supposed to do, whether there were any problems in the office. And then they worked their way down. And what they found as they worked their way down was that uh, each clerk had a different story to tell. Um, very often, problems were highlighted. Um, and very often, some of the, the junior clerks had really good ideas about how to make the bank more secure and more efficient. Okay, so it was about improving what the bank did as a result of the inquiry. Yes, it, I think it was, it was about proving that the bank did a good job, proving that levels of corruption were very low, um, proving that the bank's clerks were concerned with their duty to the public. Uh, but they did inevitably uh, unearth an, a number of problems. Uh, these were chiefly security problems. Security was found to be quite lax in a number of areas. Uh, there were lots of inefficiencies, um, but as I said, lots of good ideas uh, for how to improve um, and how to make the bank more efficient. The chief problem that was found was a lack of attention from the senior men. 
the senior men tended to let their juniors get on with uh, their work um, and didn't exercise enough oversight in the view of the inspectors. One thing that I suppose the public might have been concerned about is the fact that the clerks had access to the bank vaults. How common do you think kind of that kind of malpractice by staff was? Uh, it was incredibly common. These these kind of security breaches uh, were happening many, many times a day. I'm not sure that we can uh, describe it as malpractice. It was certainly very poor practice and it was regarded as such by the inspectors. But the excuse, or I suppose the reason for these poor practices uh, was that the bank was incredibly busy. Um, there, there probably weren't enough staff, even at more than 300 staff, there probably weren't enough to do the job that uh, they were supposed to be doing. Shortcuts had to be taken, corners had to be cut in order that uh, the bank functioned at all. And these shortcuts, I think, often involved um, leaving vaults open, uh, clerks who shouldn't necessarily have had access uh, to vaults being allowed access, just because there was nobody else uh, to, to do that work. The inspectors also reported on the personal characteristics of the bank workers. What form did these descriptions take? Uh, they were normally just one or two lines um, in the report. What tended to happen was that they would ask the senior men um, during their first interview, uh, what are the men under you like? Um, the vast majority said that the men who worked for them were extremely good, extremely competent. They didn't have very many complaints. Uh, so you get a sort of basic um, notion from these kind of reports that uh, most men did well, um, did their business, um, did, you know, did, did their jobs very well um, and were very competent. The interesting point is that one of the inspectors kept a notebook as he was going around and he made his own little notes about the men that he interviewed. Uh, and these were usually just one or two lines, but it's here that we see a little bit more detail about what the men were like. And it's here where uh, people like um, Mr. Kingdon is uh, condemned as being rather rude to the public. Um, and you get you get a lot of these sort of little one or two line um, character summations, which which uh, offer a great deal of interest. Um, the most interesting ones are some of the elderly men in the bank. Um, Mr. Bolt, for example, is uh, described as almost worn out. Um, so no longer really capable of doing his job. Mr. Gardner, who'd worked at the bank for 39 years, was described as prejudiced to the old mould. Um, and therefore, you know, he, could, he couldn't be convinced uh, to engage with some of the new innovations that seemed to be coming through. Uh, so it, it's very interesting from that point of view. Uh, the most well-drawn uh, character that we have, though, is Abraham Vickery. Um, and he's well drawn because of the way he reacts uh, to the committee, the fact that he goes in and he immediately says, well, I, I'm going to tell everything. I'm going to uh, say warts and all uh, what my men were doing. Um, and uh, I'm going to be very honest about the shortcomings of the clerks who work for me. 
How do you think people inside the bank viewed their inquiry? I think they were quite nervous about it. I, I think you can see from some of the responses that the committee gets um, that a lot of people were observing their actions in previous offices and trying to change, um, you know, trying to update their positions before uh, the committee gets there. So you get a lot of comments saying, oh, we know you made this comment in the 3% consul's office. We've addressed that. You know, it doesn't happen in our office be- um, now. Um, there are some others who look upon this as a bit of an opportunity. Uh, I think there are certainly some um, middling clerks who look at it as a way to push themselves forward and push themselves up. Uh, there are people who come in front of the committee and uh give the committee a long list of ideas about how to improve things, how to make things more efficient. Uh, And there are some junior clerks who look at it as a way of voicing their grievances. Uh, There were a number of offices where the working hours were extremely long um, and the work very complicated. And the clerks in those offices use the committee uh, of inspection in order to uh, improve their working conditions. They make they make a formal complaint to the committee uh, that they're not being properly compensated, and they ask the committee to take their grievances um, to the board of directors. So, what changed as a result of the report? Uh, there's an awful lot of changes uh, that take place. Um, they could be as simple as um, just making sure that vaults are locked um, and cabinets are locked uh, at the end of the day. Uh, but the bank also tore down walls um, and reconstructed offices to make things more efficient. Um, they employed more staff. They changed working hours uh, to improve the service to the public. Um, and I suppose the biggest change was that the senior staff uh, were admonished and they were told that they had to keep a much closer control of the bank's business in future. So for the senior men, there was to be no more clocking off at half past three. Uh, they needed to stay until the bank's business were done, was done um, and they needed to take a far more hands-on approach uh, to the business in their offices. So do we know whether the changes stayed in place? Were they long-lasting changes? Some of them were, yes. And the longest-lasting change was that the committee that had been set up was convened on a regular basis uh, in the years that followed, just as a method of reviewing practice, uh, making sure that clerks were doing their job properly, making sure that security did not slip. The big problem was um, the fact that from the 1790s um, and through to 1815, the bank really faced its biggest challenge yet. um, And that was the wars with revolutionary and Napoleonic France. During that time, public debt increased um, by huge amounts. The bank's business increased by huge amounts as well. The number of its clerks went from 300 to 900 over that period. Um, And once again, shortcuts had to be taken because that was the only way of getting business done. That was the only way of serving the public. And what parallels do you think that we can draw with a 21st century banking crisis? Uh, I think um, in the late 18th century as today, these these issues all have arisen because of uh, a more general 
economic crisis. So in the late 18th century, it was the costs of the war of American independence, uh, the supposed corruption of the public finances. And this brings uh, financiers and the Bank of England um, more to the limelight. You, you know, there's things need to be done very clearly. Um, and therefore, the bank has to put has to be seen to be putting its house in order. Um, so I think it's it's more general crisis that um, highlights uh, that financiers have questions to answer. Um, I think also some of the problems that are highlighted by uh, the banking inquiry of the late 18th century um, are very similar to the kinds of problems that we highlight today. There's a deep concern that financiers and bankers are just lining their own pockets, um, that their service to the public is poor. Um, there's a deep concern about what they're taking out of um, their work. Uh, today, the question is bonuses. In the late 18th century, it was tips and gratuities. How much was how much of these tips and gratuities uh, were going into the clerk's pockets? Um, there's also, I think, parallel concerns about security, particularly security of personal details. Um, and for the bank in the late 18th century, this this was a big problem. Being able to preserve uh, the security of customers' personal details uh, was a constant battle for them. And I think there's also one important difference, and that is that the late 18th century bankers were very confident of their place um, and their value both to the city of London and to the country more generally. Um, and they say very clearly that the bank should be held with, a, with an almost religious veneration. Um, and I doubt that there are many 21st century bankers uh, who would like to assert the same thing about their institutions. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Anne Murphy talking to Matt Elton. For more on this story, check out the January issue of BBC History magazine, which is still available as a back issue and on the iPad and Google Play. We'd love to know what you think about the podcast, and as such, we've put together a special survey for our podcast listeners. You can find it at historypodcast.questionpro.com. And as an added inducement, we're offering an iPad mini for one lucky respondent. Now, unfortunately, that prize is only available to UK residents... However, we would still be really keen to get your views wherever you're based. The address again for that is historypodcast.questionpro.com. Being a medieval king required a lot of money, with much of it spent on wine, women and war. BBC History magazine's Charlotte Hodgman caught up with Judith Green, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Edinburgh, to find out what financial records, known as pipe rolls, can tell us about the reign of Henry I, who was one of England's wealthiest royals. 
So, Judith, what exactly were uh, pipe rolls? They're financial accounts of medieval English kings, and they were called pipes because at, they were kept separately at the start. So when they were rolled up, you could see through the middle and they looked like sections of pipe, whereas other kinds of rolls kept by the medieval government um, were continuous. So they looked like loo rolls, in fact. You couldn't <laughs> see through them. OK, and, and what can they tell us about the wealth of Henry I? They give you statistics about finance, basically. Finance from England. You don't know anything about uh, things he received that wasn't in, in the form of money uh, or revenue he got from Normandy or presents he was sent. He was actually sent a porcupine, which we know about. He, he had a menagerie of exotic animals he kept at Woodstock. But pipe rolls don't tell you about that so much as uh, revenues from land, from towns, from the church and so on. Okay. And as well as uh, the wealth of Henry I, what, what else can the pipe rolls tell us? They tell you about people, uh, people and their movements, and uh, particularly the good and, or the not so good, actually, and great of early 12th century England, because the, the single surviving original pipe roll of Henry I is securely dated. So you know that the people mentioned are either alive or dead, and you get names. And this is about what? 50 years or so after Doomsday Book. So you can actually trace people from Doomsday Book and then see the next generations of their families. So you know about medieval England at a very, very early date and a level of detail about people you don't know for anywhere else in the world. And, and how long uh, were these pipe rolls used for? When Was Henry the first person to use these? We think that the actual idea of auditing uh, sheriffs, the people who collected the, the revenues for the kings, the idea of, of audit in the form that we see it in the pipe roll might have been uh, developed under Henry himself. But the whole idea of people bringing revenues to the treasury was obviously much older. And certainly before you get pipe rolls, you certainly were giving out the wooden tallies or receipts because uh, we have references to this from another source. And who were the main sources of income for Henry? Still land in the terms of what came in through the exchequer, because that's what the, rep the exchequer was set up to do. So the most important was land and the king's rents from towns. Um, then you get his revenue from the Danegeld, which is still very important in the early 12th century. And no, they weren't taking it as to make the Danes go away anymore. But then the other big class of, of revenue for Henry was through making people pay for justice in the royal courts or to buy privileges that they wanted. They wanted to marry heiresses or they wanted uh, to succeed to certain lands and you had to pay for that big time. So these were the real money spinners. Okay and you mentioned in your feature that um, a valuable source of income for the king uh, were the Jews. Um, can you perhaps tell us a little bit about that? Yes. We don't know that there were any Jewish communities in England before the Norman Conquest. And it's usually thought, uh, in effect, that like rabbits, uh, which is something else that came to England after 1066, that Jewish uh, merchants and uh, 
families settled in England under the protection of the Norman kings. And the pipe roll gives you the first information on names. Um, you can see them in London as a very big, wealthy group of people living under the king's protection, already lending money to very high-ranking nobles, um, but also suffering because basically the king wasn't doing this in a disinterested way. What the king was doing was stopping other people uh, harming the Jews by uh, fining them himself. And you get some very big fines uh, from the Jews on that pipe roll. Fines for what in exactly? There's a very peculiar entry on that first pipe roll about the Jews having to pay for a sick man whom they killed. And that's what it, the Latin literally says. And we don't know what that means. But um, there was a much more famous and horrific case in 1144 where the Jews were blamed for killing a child. But it looks as if that first entry is, is pointing in that direction that already people were, because they were an alien community, were regarding them with some suspicion. Okay, and obviously that's something that's continued um, throughout Henry's reign. Yes, it got a lot. It, it obviously got a lot worse. It, during the 12th century, and then you got the horrific massacre at York at the end of the 12th century. Um, we think that from London, Jewish communities spread to Norwich, to Lincoln, and to other important centres like that. And you can trace their activities on the pipe rolls. But later in the 12th century, there were separate records being kept because the king was obviously very keen to protect this particular class of um, people because of the revenue that came to him. I mean, Henry is renowned for his wealth. What did he spend his money on? Uh, literally, he spent it on um, wine and women, but mainly war. Um, medieval kings don't are, are not interested in the economy in the sense that David Cameron would be interested in. Um, war is the great dynamo of uh, making kings look for more money wherever they can get it. But war in its general sense, you not only had to pay for knights, you had to build castles, you had to pay subsidies, you used spies, Henry, Henry had a, a network of spies. All of that cost money and this is what the money um, was spent on. And of course only a, a fraction of that is ever alluded to in the official accounts, as it were, the pipe rolls. Okay, so not everything was recorded on the pipe rolls then? Absolutely not. I mean, uh, as I say, a lot of uh, wealth that he had would have been in gold, in gems, in, uh, in, in movable things that simply were not recorded. This is the, as it were, the official audit of England PLC, what's going through the books, literally. Okay. okay. Um, I mean, you've mentioned um, a particularly interesting uh entry into the pipe rolls about the porcupine is there anything else um, that you found in the in the pipe rolls um, that has surprised you yes i should say the porcupine crops up in a chronicler who who was absolutely amazed at this animal he'd never seen anything like it so he put it in his chronicle but but woodstock where um henry had his rural palace is certainly mentioned in that pipe roll and very often the, these pipe rolls talk about the wine that's being transported the building work on particular castles for example in 1130 we hear about building on the tower we hear about building on london bridge so it helps historians to 
build up a picture um, of the movement of the court, uh, the movement of uh, queens is, is also interesting, not in 1130 particularly, but in Henry II's pipe rolls, we learn a lot about the movements of Eleanor of Aquitaine and the expenses of her household. And these aren't recorded anywhere else, so it's our only source of information for that. And that's particularly interesting because you can work out when Eleanor was pregnant and where she got pregnant and when she gave birth and so on. And in a way that, because you've got precise dates um, and, it's, uh, and you can see the movements of people that you don't get from things like charters or chronicles. And, and what sort of ruler was Henry I? Do we get an idea of this from, from the pipe rolls? He's very keen on money. Um, that is certainly coming through from all the chronicles. He loved stuff. He loved money in its widest sense. Um, the more hostile reporters said he was avaricious, um, which is not a good thing in the Middle Ages. Um, he was, most of his qualities, I think, are behind the pipe rather than in it. He, he was an immensely effective ruler. He was effective in the sense that he blinded his opponents. Sometimes he castrated them. Um, he was cruel, and, and some, again, chroniclers sort of say that after he's dead, usually. He's very astute. Um, William the Conqueror, his father, was clearly a very different kind of person, um, hugely successful in war. It doesn't look as if Henry I was ever very keen on war, but he had to do it. And fortunately for him, he was successful when he was in battle. But it's not like his father or his elder brother, Robert Curtos, who went on the First Crusade and was great, you know, sort of great hero of the First Crusade, or William Rufus, who um, employed more knights than any, any other ruler north of the Alps, it was said. He just loved going to war. Well, Henry wasn't like that at all. He was cunning, actually, is mm. what he was. And, and how long were pipe rolls actually used for? They became less and less important. I've, I've talked about the 12th century today, but obviously as time goes on, you get more and more different sets of records. So you don't need the pipe rolls quite so much. You still need them for things like spending on castles. They're still very useful. Um, but by the end of the Middle Ages, you, you get the image of these clerks sitting there drawing up these rolls, um, which are not really terribly useful anymore. And they carry on doing it till um, the early 19th century. Um, it's really in the late 18th century that the, they finally decide to stop issuing tallies and drawing up pipe rolls. Um, but they seem to sort of have an afterlife. And by the early 19th century, they were wondering what to do with all this stuff. But by that time, as far as I can see, I once I, I remember once reading a book about the clerks and, and, and these were sinecures. They were basically sending each other little notes to say, come round to my house on Thursday evening for a nice little supper. They weren't actually doing anything, really. But it's, it's a, a very interesting example of bureaucratic inertia, the way that the old structures carry on. Um, because nobody really abolishes them. There was always somebody in post who would lose their job if you abolished a sinecure. So, so they tended not to get abolished. And you set new offices up instead. And do Henry's pipe rolls differ much to his, you know, his predecessors or um, those after him? Well, this is the tantalising question because we only have 
the, the one original for Henry I's reign. We've got a sort of shadowy reference to one a few years before. This is the only original one. But the interesting thing is, if you look at the images online, you can see that the, the person who drew that up was not experimenting. It wasn't an experimental document. He was drawing it up in a way that he had used the, the one for the year before as a sort of template and written out all the headings and said, the Sheriff of Nottingham has to pay so much and so on. So he copied all that out. So it's already settled by the time that we have it. And it carries on being very similar. They obviously get a lot bigger by the 13th century. And the handwriting changes as one scribe dies, perhaps at the Black Death, and somebody else takes over. But, but actually, they stay remarkably similar. And what do you think the value of the pipe rolls are to historians today? What, what can we learn from them? It's this question of the precise dating and the figures. You can actually draw statistics up for medieval kings, in a, for England, in a way that you can't do for other European countries till much later. And you can use the pipe rolls to cross-check other sources of information. For example, um, we've got the anniversary of Magna Carta coming up in, in 2015, and there will be a lot of, I'm sure BBC History will be doing a lot about this, but you can see from the pipe rolls in King John's reign exactly exactly how the, the financial burden, um, King John would sell anything like all of these kings and how that was falling, that burden was falling on particular magnates. They were having to pay through the nose um, to, to, to put forward their family's interests, to get their children married, to secure wardships, all of that sort of thing. And do you think there are still things to find out from the roles? Are there any sort of secrets to be had still? Absolutely. Um, I think the article in the magazine shows that you can look at the 12th century pipe rolls online now because they were printed and they're now out of copyright, so they're available online. But most of the 13th century and onward have not been published. The Pipe Roll Society is doing this, but of course there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So they're all sitting there at the National Archives in Kew uh, for anyone to call up and, and sort of work on exactly what the finances of English kings were. That was Judith Green speaking to Charlotte Hodgman. And if you'd like to view pipe rolls dating to the 12th and 13th centuries, then visit piperollsociety.co.uk. You can also read Judith's feature on the subject in our February issue, which is out now in all good news agents and available on the Kindle, iPad, Kindle Fire and Google Play. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do let us know what you think on email, podcast at historyextra.com or on social media, Twitter at History Extra or Facebook forward slash History Extra. Next week, we'll be talking about the Industrial Revolution and eugenics. Do join us for that. And in the meantime, don't forget to take our podcast survey, which is at historypodcast.questionpro.com. The History Extra weekly podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. 